electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today on our podcast. The COP26 Climate Summit kicks off in Glasgow. But how much change are world leaders willing to make? New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. There's only one thing as big as Mother Nature, and that's Father Greed. That's the market. And kids ready for their shots and ready to get back out there. Kathy, how about you? What are you the most excited? Going to a carnival. Going to a carnival? Okay. Soon, Hadley. Dr. Kavita Patel says just how soon. Some of the pediatric offices I've talked to said that they're being told to be ready Wednesday. Seems ambitious, but people are actually ready and willing, and there are already appointments being filed and made. Those stories, plus a nightmare weekend for thousands of travelers, and more fallout from Jeffrey Epstein, now in banking. In the legal world in the U.S., they call this the crime of upholstery. The cover-up is worse than the crime. It's Monday, November 1st, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, kill please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. Let's get an update on weekend travel delays. Thousands of people were stranded at airports after American Airlines canceled more than 1,800 flights. All of those cancellations came since Friday. The airline blamed staffing problems and high winds at its hub in Dallas on Thursday. That left crew members out of position for their next flights. Carriers convinced thousands of staff members to accept voluntary buyouts or leaves of absence to try and cut expenses during the pandemic. American COO said that 1,800 flight attendants would be returning from leave starting today, November 1st, and that would be uh, more would be returning in December. Uh, Andrew, another issue with this was just the idea that it's the end of the month and a lot of flight attendants and pilots had reached their limit for how many hours they can work during the month. But again, it's just symbolic of the idea that they have not gotten back to staffing levels. Uh, that they had pre-pandemic. Um, it's, a, it's a real problem. And I just wonder, you know, whether whether the issue is simply just getting the staff back that they didn't have, whether it's a pricing issue, which is to say that they're trying to to hold margins so that they're they're not bringing the staff back. Sort of what's really behind. With and pilots, then, of course, there's in some weather. cases, it's training. They have to have a certain number of hours um, that they've put in on either on simulators or in the cockpit before they can really be allowed right. back in. Which is also a real issue. Let's go uh, across the pond, as they say, because some news was breaking overnight. Uh, they are Barclays CEO Jess Staley is stepping down, this following an investigation into his relationship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Jeff Cutmore joins us more right with all of it right now. Good morning. Yeah, this was a real surprise, Andrew. The report by the city regulator and the Bank of England looked into the way Jess Staley had characterized his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein to Barclays 
when he was a private banker to Epstein in a previous job. The uh, UK lender announcing today that it was made aware of the preliminary results of the probe on Friday evening. Uh, Barclays saying the board and Staley agreed on his departure, quote, in view of those conclusions, but adding that Staley intends to contest the findings. Now, the bank says it has named CS uh, Venkata Krishnan, the current head of global markets, as Staley's replacement. He's going to take over as the chief executive immediately today. Now, Staley says his departure is a personal response to the ongoing probe. According to an internal memo that was seen by Reuters, the departing chief adding he didn't want the probe to be a distraction. Uh, Meanwhile, in a separate internal memo, the incoming CEO has said he will maintain Staley's strategy, which he called, quote, the right one. That is also according to Reuters, but he did say changes will be made to the corporate and investment bank in coming days. Back to you. Jeff Cutmore, before you go, uh, two things. They, they, in the legal world in the U.S., they call this the crime of upholstery. The cover-up is worse than the crime. So just so we're, we're and first of all, we, we should say, we don't know if there was any crimes involved, obviously, but it sounds like this, this is about misleading the bank or misleading the regulators rather than the actual underlying issue itself. That's absolutely it. I think you've nailed it here. Details are scarce at this point, but I will tell you this investigation has been running for well over a year. But all the way along, Barclays board have said they think he's been transparent and open. He claims he's been transparent and open. And as as I say, he is going to contest these findings. Um, That's the message we have from Jez Staley at this point. But we're still a little bit in the dark about exactly what was wrong with the way he characterized his relationship. But clearly, that is the nub of the issue, as you describe it. Hey, hey Jeff, I've, I've read reports that suggest that, you know, he had said this was strictly a, a, a relationship that was a, a purely professional relationship. And, and maybe that's where the questions come in. Maybe there was more than just a professional relationship or at least emails that have led them to question that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. There is a possibility of that because um, I think in terms of what we do know, we know that he had visited uh, Jeffrey Epstein's boat. Does that mean it was just a purely professional relationship or did it extend somewhat beyond that? Uh, We know that um, an exchange of emails was passed on uh, to the UK regulators from the United States. Uh, So, There is plenty of information for the regulators to work through here. And as they looked at the exchanges between the two men, clearly they may have decided that there was something more to that relationship than just uh, a pure business relationship between a wealthy individual and his private banker. Uh, Jeff, before you, well, two two things. One, fascinating that that the board itself... It doesn't appear necessarily thinks that they were misled, but the regulators think that the board was misled. And then the secondary issue I was just going to ask you about is this new CEO. Is this an interim temporary situation or are you anticipating this is now the CEO of the company going forward? I think you're absolutely right um, on the first point. In terms of the status of the new CEO, as we understand it at the moment, um, there was no interim or temporary attached to the announcement effectively he is the new ceo as of today okay jeff cutmore thank you an update on the strike at deer workers are scheduled to vote tomorrow on a contract proposal that offers bigger raises and bonuses 
from a proposal that the UAW union members had rejected three weeks ago. Now, workers said the raises in that previous offer weren't high enough to keep up with inflation. But, Becky, it goes back to the same old story we've been talking about, the power of labor and the increase in costs of that labor. Yeah, I mean, this is something Jim Cramer was talking about before they went on strike at Deere and said, look, Deere really has to settle with them. They need this to get resolved. And that workers do have a lot more leverage than they had in the past. That This is a time when the workers have that leverage and they've been speaking up and you hear it from a lot of different companies right now. We are expecting the rollout of Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine shot for kids any day now. Meg Terrell joins us right now with how doctors and parents are preparing. Good morning, Meg. Good morning, Becky. So tomorrow, CDC's group of outside advisors meets to discuss guidance for Pfizer's vaccine, which got emergency use authorization on Friday night. After that, if the CDC director signs off, kids could start getting vaccinated very soon. So we talked with public health experts and officials about how they're preparing. First, let's look at the numbers. There's about 28 million kids in this age group, 5 to 11, in the United States. They're each going to need two doses of this vaccine. In terms of the supply we're expecting, about 15 million doses expected to be shipped in the first week, probably happening now after that authorization on Friday. 10 million going to states and jurisdictions, 5 million to pharmacies, then an additional 5 million per week capacity after that. Now, where are these actually going? Where will kids be able to get vaccinated? Uh, most jurisdictions and states said they're diverting the doses to uh, doctor's offices, 50%. 29% said to health departments, 4% to school-based clinics, uh, and then a mixture of other places. But some states like Maine are really focusing in on schools, which is really interesting. It'll be different based on where you are. Now, how much demand is out there for the shot? Well, Kaiser Family Foundation updated its poll last week and found 30% of parents of kids this age say definitely not. 33% are in the wait and see category and 27% say right away they want the vaccine. Uh, We talked with a couple kids and parents who are raring to go. Listen to what these little kids had to say about getting the shot. Vaccines are very important. You should get them. Just a little shot for a, a little bit, but the sickness is gone forever. Which is just a great description of what vaccines do, Becky. Uh, It's really interesting to hear from different families. Some are so excited and are getting it right away. Others are going to be more in the wait and see category. And we did get an update from FDA on Friday for even younger kids. It's going to be a few more months for them. Parental concerns have increased um, starting since June. There have been a lot more concerns about whether they would be getting their younger kids vaccinated. That comes even from parents who have vaccinated some of their older children. What have health authorities said along those lines about what they would do, what they uh, what they think about that? Pretty universally, pediatricians and health officials are recommending kids in this age group get vaccinated um, for the kids themselves, for protection against what is a top 10 leading cause of deaths in this age group, um, but also to try to help stop the pandemic, to cut down on transmission, to help school get back to normal. Uh, and talking with a lot of these kids, they're not excited about getting the shot themselves, itself, obviously, but when they talk about what they'll be able to do, going inside, some said they want to go to Chuck E. Cheese, they're excited to get back to normal. Is it thought that mask mandates will come down if kids get vaccinated? Is there that same sort of um, kind of reward system built into it? You know, the CDC director has not been willing to say, yes, when a certain number of kids get vaccinated, we'll lift mask mandates. I think maybe they're a little bit scarred from the guidance that happened in the spring. Um, But a lot of public health experts are calling for plans as to when we start the sort of off-ramp of masking, figuring out how we get a safe enough ecosystem around kids that we can start lifting the mask mandates in schools. Meg, thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, we're heading to Glasgow. 
world leaders kick off a climate summit, and theoretically promise change. New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. Everyone's ready to do kind of the low-hanging fruit, but when it comes to asking people to do anything that might crimp my economy and really diminish living standards, no one's ready to do that. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Becks, a lot going on across the pond as COP26 begins. That's right. The world leaders gathering in Scotland this morning following G20 sit-downs in Italy over the weekend. President Biden facing the difficult task of convincing allies and skeptics that the United States is serious about tackling climate change. Diana Olick joins us with more. And Diana, that was probably a tough move that the president is not able to go with any legislative victories from his own houses of Congress before he shows up there. Yeah, absolutely a tough move. But look, we're just a few hours away from the start of the COP26 World Leaders Summit, which some have called the last chance to control global warming. More than 100 heads of state have been arriving in Glasgow this morning. President Biden is expected to make remarks around 9 a.m. Eastern time. Noticeably absent will be China's President Xi and Russia's President Putin. Now, while the show of power is immense, the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said at the opening of the G20, there is a serious risk that Glasgow will not deliver. And he pointed to weak promises from China, Russia and others. And on that note, in a press conference in Rome last night, President Biden was asked how he could urge refineries to produce more oil due to shortages and at the same time push to cut emissions on a world stage. It seems like an irony, but the truth of the matter is you've all known, everyone knows, that the idea we're going to be able to move to renewable energy overnight and not have, from this moment on, not use oil or not use gas or not use hydrogen is just not rational. Now, in addition to world leaders, dozens of corporate CEOs, fund managers and venture capital firms will be here over the two weeks, as that's likely where we're going to see the biggest financial commitment to climate. Becky. Diana, one of the big questions has to be coal as well. Um, and, and the United States, not, along with uh, kind of pushing for more drilling of oil, has been using more coal for the first time in a very long time over this last year as natural gas prices skyrocketed. Um, that, that's been a huge issue and, and, and one where you have a, a place like China where they use a lot of coal, too. Uh, again, the president doesn't have a very strong hand on, on trying to push this because he's run into problems of his own 
when you look at Senator Manchin, who comes from a coal state. Yeah, exactly. And there was an agreement at the G20 to stop international financing of coal. But look, China is the world's biggest greenhouse gas emitter, and it really didn't step up and up the ante on its pledge to get to net zero or even to reduce emissions before 2030. So today and tomorrow, you're really going to hear a lot of speeches and promises from world leaders. But after that, the real work will begin, and that's diplomats and deputies, ministers trying to come to some kind of agreement to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that will depend, of course, as you say, on coal. Hey, Diana, I don't know if it's on the official schedule. I was looking and didn't see his name. Uh, but Jeff Bezos uh, posted uh, to Instagram last night. Uh, he had a it was a picture of him and Prince Charles ahead of COP26 uh, talking to each other. Um, is he going to be speaking? Do we know about what? Well, we haven't seen anything on that schedule yet on Bezos. We do, knew, we do know that Microsoft's Bill Gates will be here, among other top-level corporate executives. And we know that members of the Bezos Earth Fund are already here on the ground, and we've spoken to them as well. Still waiting to get the firm schedule on some of that. This does go for two weeks, so we have a lot to come. Diana, as notable as it is for all the people who are there, maybe it's even more notable for those who aren't. And, and by that, I would say the heads of both China and Russia not showing. Yeah, the head of China, especially because China is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Um, he is going to put out a written statement, we're told, but it is falling short of what the hope was that China would put some kind of more aggressive uh, plan to help stop global warming. But so far, they're not saying that there will even stop increasing emissions until 2030 and get to net zero perhaps by 2060. So that was a disappointment going into this event. Becky. Diana, thank you. Our Diana Olick again in Glasgow. Joining us right now to talk much more about this and more is New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman. His latest column, which is out today, asks, would Russia or China help us if we were invaded by space aliens? Tom's headed to cover the climate summit this week. And, and Tom, that gets to a good question. There, there have been some serious changes that we've seen in global policy over the last year or so, things from the Middle East to China to Russia. And it, it's kind of changing the map right now. What, what's the answer to that question you pose in your column? Would they help us if there were space aliens attacking us? I wouldn't count on it, Becky. Um, uh, you know, what we've really seen is a, is a really bad um, coincidence, uh, an upsurge in raw geopolitical competition between great powers, Russia, China uh, versus America. Um, uh, and it, it's become more raw uh, and contentious, really, than uh, uh, at any time, maybe since the end of the Cold War, happening at a time when we really need as much global coordination as possible, uh, not from a space alien, but um, from someone more familiar uh, previously thought it was more benign, and that's Mother Nature uh, and, and climate change. And so there's no good time um, for having a, a great power war. This is probably a great car struggle. Uh, it's not a war yet. Um, God forbid it should be. But, uh, but there's a really bad time, and a bad time is when the world needs to come together around uh, a lot of these climate goals. Tom, China made it pretty clear that they're not showing up and, and not going to do more in terms of statements on commitment because they're concerned, they're upset that the United States keeps interfering with what it considers to be its own domestic policy. That's things with Taiwan in particular, things with the Uyghurs. Um, what's the United States to do in that scenario? Yeah, you know, um, Becky, this is really the first time we've seen that. You know, China's been a, uh, a quite a, a forward-leaning actor on this issue. If you go back to Copenhagen, if you go back to the Paris COP, um, uh, but what we've seen coming out of the sort of wolf warrior um, diplomats in, in China is this... Um, 
you know, uh, uh, we'll only uh, clean up our air if you'll uh, let us choke the air off in Hong Kong uh, and fly through the airspace of China. Um, I think there's a lot of division in China on this issue, actually. I think there uh, is a part of the leadership there that understands that um, it's in China's national interest to be doing this and to be leading the world on this issue. But others are, uh, it's clear that geopolitics is now has, uh, has blended in here in ways we have not seen before. Tom, part of this is happening, and, and, and there's some, uh, some situations that the president has been put in conflict. President Biden was asked at the press conference last night, look, you are asking countries to, to reach these new standards, these new uh, Paris Accords, and, and to do more on this front. At the same time, you are asking the Middle East nations to pump more oil because you need it. Prices are too high for your liking right now. That does put them at a weird juxtaposition. How do you solve both sides of that equation? Wanting to be able to make sure that people don't freeze, that they can drive their cars, that it doesn't cost too much. Oh, and by the way, we don't want to use any of these fossil fuels again. It's, it's, it's a weird position. Well, you know, it really is kind of a... a depiction of, of the core problem we have here. So we started out by saying, um, we're not going to do anything on clean energy, let's say, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Then we moved to, we'll do what's ever easy. Uh, that is whatever will be easy for me as a politician and not put any stress on um, my, my consumers or, or, or my industries. Um, and really not ask any, anyone to do anything hard as a, uh, for, for the next generation. The next step would actually be asking people to do things that are really hard. Um, and the next step would be doing things that are urgent. Um, so we're, we're kind of stuck in stage two here. Everyone's ready to do kind of the, the low-hanging fruit. Um, but when it comes to asking people to do anything that might crimp my economy, by the way, this is understandable, um, and, and really maybe even uh, diminish living standards, no one's ready to do that. And the contradiction you pointed out there. It's just a manifestation of this. You know, myself, you know, going back, I wrote a book about this in 2008, Hot Flight and Crowd, and I've had the same view ever since. There's only one thing, Becky, as big as, as, as um, uh, Mother Nature, and that's father greed. That's the market. Um, and if you incentivize the market uh, to produce clean, green technologies, it, it will do that. And my view has always been, if you're not serious about a carbon tax, the kind of idea that Jim Baker and, and George Schultz uh, like George Schultz and, and, and Jim Baker, two former Republican secretaries of states, have called for an, a carbon tax that would rebate 100% of, basically, but get people to reshape the market to truly incentivize investment in, in clean, green technologies going forward. You're really not serious. In the meantime, though, it, we are in a better position than places like Europe, where they just don't have the supply of natural gas. They have to go to Vladimir Putin and beg him to release the gas supplies at this point. And if things get cold this winter, that's going to put a lot of Europeans in a very precarious position. If, if it's an extra cold winter, you could be talking about people literally dying because they can't get enough heat. You know, Becky, if it's a cold and, uh, and a calm winter where you don't get mu much wind or as much wind as you expected, you could find um, uh, European countries in a choice between, or families, middle and lower class families, uh, lower income families, in a situation of heat or eat. And I guarantee if that happens, that could be the end of the green movement, or it would be a huge setback for the green movement in Europe. You know, there's a, the first thing they tell you if you go to Brooks Brothers and you want to buy a, a suit, it's really a good idea not to take your belt off before you have the suspenders in place. Just <laughs> a good idea. You know, it's, and when you're Germany, Becky, do you realize that in 2010, Germany got 22% of its electricity from nuclear power, a virtually 
completely clean power. They voted after Fukushima to phase it all out by 2022. So what's happened? Because there isn't enough natural gas, the next uh, the next cleanest fuel. They've had to go back to actually mining and using the dirtiest coal. And now I just read a report: hundreds of Germans have died from breathing the socks and knocks, um, you know, the pollutants from coal. Uh, far more than ever died anywhere in the world from nuclear power. So you know, there's just a level of unreality here. We are in a transition. In this transition, we want people to use whatever is the cleanest fuel they have possible, natural gas, uh, uh, nuclear um, uh, in particular. And um, people want to be purists. And it's you're, you're throwing away your belt before you have your suspenders in place. OK, so you're, you're saying that Germany and the rest of Europe got caught with their pants down. Is the United States in a similar position where the same thing could happen to us? Well, we're lucky because we are blessed. We are the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. We, we, we're blessed with huge amounts. And, and while some of that production was shut down and shut in when the pandemic came along, um, because people thought demand was going to go fall back and, and the industry had a lot of financial problems too. But we can relatively uh, ramp up pretty quickly. So we're in a good position to take advantage of that. What we're not in a good position to do, Becky, is to export our surplus natural gas to our NATO allies. And that, that's, to me, the plan we should have in place. We should be investing in more LNG export terminals and more import terminals there. People tell me there may be sufficient already. I don't really know. But we need to really create an alternative for them to Vladimir Putin sitting back in Moscow, drumming his fingers, saying, hey, nice little EU you guys got. It would be a shame, a shame if you ran out of natural gas. Now, who's going to be nice to Vladimir? Tom, just listening to all of this, it makes me think that between Biden not being able to get anything passed in the United States Congress before he went with uh, China not showing up, Russia not showing up and Vladimir Putin kind of holding all of this over him, that things are probably quite a bit worse off in terms of anybody who thinks they want to get more done on climate change. We're probably less in a position to do that globally no? You know, Becky, um, uh Clean energy, energy in general, but clean energy in particular, is a scale challenge. It's a scale problem. If you don't have scale, you have a hobby. I like hobbies. I used to build model airplanes. I play a little golf even. But I wouldn't try to change the climate as a hobby. you got to be serious about this issue. Um, and it's not about I tweeted about it. You've got to shape the one force that can give you scale that we have under our control, and it's called the market. And if you shape it in the right way, it can get us a long way to where we want to go. Tom, thank you. Great to see you. You too, Beck. Thanks. Keys will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, getting shots in the youngest arms. COVID vaccines for kids aged 5 to 11 are on the horizon. Here's Dr. Kavita Patel. I would truly expect for most parents to think about their children if they're eager to get vaccinated over the next several weeks, certainly before Thanksgiving, but not as early as this weekend for most of America. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. 
Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. Let's get back to the kids vaccine rollout in the United States. Joining us now is Dr. Kavita Patel, the former White House policy director and fellow at the Brookings Institution. And Kavita, we were just talking about this rollout. I guess it could happen as soon as this week kids would be able to get vaccinated. Is that what you hear? Yeah, Becky, listen, some of the pediatric offices I've talked to said that they're being told to be ready Wednesday, which is a little too soon to believe just because the CDC makes their decision. And then Pfizer obviously can ship uh, some of those special sized and colored vials. But getting that ready for shots in arms by Wednesday seems ambitious, but people are actually ready and willing. And there are already appointments being filed and made for as early as this Friday, Saturday and Sunday for first shots. I mean, I I think about it that many of the doctor's offices um, that I've spoken to, at least, have have been a little concerned because, you know, they haven't been in the process of giving these shots. They give flu shots, they give other vaccinations, but these are a little different. Could you expect that there will be a few weeks for trying to iron out some of the kinks there? Absolutely. Even in my own clinic where we do give pediatric vaccines on a routine basis, we're having to walk through and especially because we're giving first shots for flu and all the other regular immunizations to children. And then we're having to kind of follow these special instructions, not that special in the scheme of COVID vaccines, Becky, but special for pediatric COVID vaccines, which many of these pediatric offices have not been giving. So you're exactly right that I would truly expect for most parents to think about their children if they're eager to get vaccinated over the next several weeks, certainly before Thanksgiving, but not as early as this weekend for most of America. You think places like a CVS or another pharmacy that's already been giving COVID shots to, to adults would have a, a better chance of ramping up more quickly? They do. And that's what a lot of, I think, as Meg covered, that health departments are kind of trying to use a multilateral approach, schools, pediatric offices and pharmacies. I know, for example, in the District of Columbia, pharmacies are an incredible strategy because they are used to giving them. I have talked to parents, though, Becky, that say, you know what, I really want to have this done in my pediatrician's office. They're my trusted place for vaccines. Plus, some of them want to talk to the pediatrician or some of the staff just to get their advice. And I think that's totally reasonable. But most pediatric offices are telling patients Don't wait to get an appointment with us. It might be several weeks. If you can get a shot, get it at your local pharmacy. We'll still talk to you, but don't wait for an appointment with us. And I think that's good advice. Hey, doctor, I wanted to ask you, maybe this is a a, it's it's happening at every family's house. So maybe it's selfish, but I'm just going to ask it. And it's I think where Becky was going uh, earlier in the conversation with Meg, which is once the kids get the vaccine, all they want to know is, can they take their masks off? Right. Yeah. Andrew, that's the uh, trillion dollar question. And I think that to be responsible, you really want both doses. Right. We know children, by the way, five to 11 have incredibly robust immune systems. So there's no comparison between a five and a 50 year old. And we know that there is some immunity that's afforded into adults after that first shot. So we know that that can be helpful. But I would definitely say two shots, three weeks apart. And then certainly we would recommend a week or two after that second shot is when I could safely convince anybody that you can remove that mask in an indoor setting and likely to be safe. I will say, though, I don't think schools are going to get rid of masks anytime soon because we're not going to have an even uptake rate. And we don't want to repeat some of the mistakes of the past where we pull this back and then see an outbreak or a surge. So I think in your household, though, Andrew, it's totally reasonable if everybody else is vaccinated, even that child that's vaccinated can safely take off their mask. The second question goes to this issue of breakthroughs, which is to say we are seeing the levels come down in terms of Delta. So that's that's the great news. But then we also keep hearing about these high profile examples. Jen Psaki, 
um, and Bon Jovi being the latest in terms of breakthroughs. So how do we think about that? And again, the issue of masking in, inside or not. Yeah, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, good news, bad news here briefly. I think the bad news here is that these breakthroughs, at some point, we're going to start to become used to that the more immunity we have. Because think of this as the kind of uh, disease where at some point in our lifetime, Andrew, all of us will probably get it once, twice, or maybe several times. The goal would be to be immunized so that when we do get it, it's mild, asymptomatic, doesn't even bother us at all. It's just a diagnosis. So I do think that you're right. And it also marks to me that we do need a heightened kind of monitoring system. This is the good news for breakthroughs so that we can understand what's causing the breakthrough. Is this a variant that's escaping immunity or is this something natural that we would expect because this is just a virus that's going to work its way around the population? But something to be aware of, especially if you're high risk with chronic conditions, as we only have about 60 percent of the country vaccinated. And then hopefully over in the next year, this will become a little bit more normal and not as threatening to the kind of activities of the public. But it shouldn't hold us back from being confident in the vaccine itself including taking off masks eventually. Dr. Patel, uh, Meg pointed out to the, the latest surveys that show something like 30 percent of parents don't want to vaccinate their kids right now. They just they, they don't trust it. It's not even a right now question. They don't want to do it at all. What, what does that yeah. mean in terms of what you might be able to accomplish? Yeah, I do think that, that I, I think that what we need to do is get my I've got my own little unvaccinated uh, problem right here. Uh, also, at tell, her we hope she, so, yeah, tell her we hope she feels better. <laughs> yeah, we hope the iPad works quickly. I, I, I think the problem is really that we can't put the burden of vaccinating an entire population on five to 11 year olds when we're still trying to get 40 percent of adults in many parts of the country willing to be vaccinated. So I would just say that children eventually, by the way, will have this incorporated into probably what are school mandates for vaccines, probably by the end of 2020. Most likely fall of 2022. So parents should think about this a little differently as part of a routine schedule. But I don't want to see children being placed. We shouldn't be causing children to not go to school because we're not accepting that we need to be vaccinated as adults. And I really do hope for that under five set, which I know a lot of us are worried about, including Meg, that if the more adults and children in this age group we can vaccinate, the less pressure we have for under five to get vaccinated because we just won't have as much of the disease as a burden to that age group. So that's really the goal, knowing that when that could happen, it's probably going to take a year. Vaccines for kids under five would be a year from now? No, no, not that. Not that. Um, I'm sorry, Becky, not the timing for under a year, just kind of getting to where we have enough of the kind of world and the population vaccinated to protect the under five group. And I think that'll also take the pressure off off of infants and young children having to be kind of the first group to be vaccinated. So it's going to take time in order to get that group under five won't be available for a while, but we'll be able to that group will depend on the older group vaccinated for that protection. Right. Dr. Patel, thank you. <laughs> and, and good luck at home with yeah. your little one. Sorry. Thanks, <laughs> no, it's OK. Hope they feel better. We've all been through it. Yes. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right to your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This 
podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.